Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, the sun has come up. And so now we ask, as we just sang, that you would satisfy us. Satisfy us with your love. Show us your goodness. Teach us how brief our days are and help us to live for you and for what's to come. We pray that you teach us now through your word. Speak to each one of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. And uh, if you were here at the beginning, Bruno asked me to remind, to actually correct something. We don't have a members meeting next week, so if you're a member, you don't show up at 1.30. You'll be all alone. <laughs> we have one next month, so... <laughs> Who can you trust? No, really, who can you really trust today? In a world proliferated by fake news, propaganda, conspiracies, deep fake videos, CGI, AI-generated images, deceit, exaggeration, slander, perjury, celebrities lying about each other, friends that we generally trust trying to convince us of two polar opposite positions. It's enough to make our heads spin with frustration. Ah, like I wish I knew, I wish I could know whether something is trustworthy or whether it's twisted. But the fact is, the corruption of our world began with us believing a lie from the deceiver. And so it's no wonder that deception has rippled across all creation, infecting every corner. Really, our frustration with not knowing who to trust today stems directly from our fall. It's a hard fact of life in a broken world under the sun. However, this doesn't mean that there is no longer any truth or anyone trustworthy around. If you suspect I'm going to tell you that you can trust God, well, you'd be right. I believe that we have a source of infallible truth and untainted wisdom in him and in his word. And part of why I find his word so trustworthy is its unabashed honesty about the state of the world. Right? It doesn't try to hide or whitewash or tritely explain away our brokenness and our fallenness in order, in order to make our faith more defensible or to make God look better. No, it's brutally realistic about it all. And it thus reflects reality really well. Though in contrast to a broken world, God ends up looking better than ever anyway. Perhaps nowhere is this more evident than in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll finish up today. So if you haven't already, you can take a, a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I subtitled this series, Finding Wisdom and Joy in Our Fleeting and Frustrating Lives. Finding Wisdom 
and joy. Last week, after we considered what it means to remember our Creator as we age, Solomon came to this familiar conclusion. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. But is there wisdom? Is there joy to be found in the midst of all the vanity? Well, the answer throughout the book has been yes. Life is like a breath, but it's also beautiful. So enjoy it as long as God gives it to you. There's the joy. And today's conclusion will wrap things up by drawing us back to the heart of wisdom. What did Solomon find at the end of his quest? What gain is there for us in all our toil? In a word, wisdom. And in a name, God. We can live wisely in God's world, even now, even today. Verses 9 to 14, which is where we are today, are somewhat like an epilogue, possibly even written later on by a narrator who tried to summarize Solomon's wisdom and convince us to listen to him. Look at verse 9. It says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Now we know Solomon was given supernatural wisdom. He's the wisest man in the world. But Solomon wasn't just a scholar who shut himself away in libraries or ivory towers. He was a teacher, a preacher, who passed on everything he learned to others. His goal wasn't just to become wise himself, but to make others wise as well. And to that end, as part of his lifelong quest, it says that he had been weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. So he listened carefully, he pondered, he examined, he interpreted everything that he learned. Then he carefully organized and classified and arranged, wrote down the wisdom that he collected so that it could be helpful to others and preserved for future generations. And he did all of this, it says, with great care. So this wasn't just some research project for Solomon like you get from a prof. This was a, a passion project for Solomon. He's pictured here as brilliant, diligent, creative, careful, and caring for others. But can we trust him? Can we trust him? Well, through his word, God tells us that we can. Look at verse 10. It says, The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, if anyone ever tells you that Ecclesiastes is actually a wrong perspective on life, you can point them here. He wrote words of truth. He wrote uprightly or righteously, writing words of truth. It is true that life is full of vanity and that gain in this world is elusive. It's true that God gives life as a gift for us to enjoy. 
It's true that, that aging and dying can teach us much wisdom for life. And here, we get a little window into Solomon's motives in writing this. It's almost a purpose statement. Like we've been saying all along that he's meant to depress us into dependence on God, right? But now we see he wasn't only seeking to depress us, but he was seeking to delight us. Did you see that? The preacher sought to find words of delight. Maybe we could also say he meant to delight us into dependence. Sure. Ecclesiastes has gloomy parts. But that doesn't mean we should feel glum after reading it. It was actually intended to infuse our lives with pleasure and with joy. But notice what Solomon used to depress or delight us. Words. Right? The preacher sought to find Words of delight, words of truth, words of wisdom. And that's the, the central focus of this passage. Words and the wisdom that we can gain from them. I have three points for you, each teaching us something in particular about true wisdom. First of all, true wisdom's effect. So this is what wisdom does. True wisdom's effect can be delightful, and painful. When we receive true wisdom, it can be both delightful and painful, or both. Are you aware that mere words can change your life? Words do things. They change things. They can even make things. If you don't believe me, Think of a, a sweet young couple on their wedding day. As they say the words, I do, a bond, a marriage, even a family are spoken into existence. Right? Think of the impact words can have on any given relationship. I'm sorry. Or... I'm not sorry. I forgive you. Or I don't forgive you. I love you. I hate you. We can wound with words. We can heal with words. We can curse or bless. Come on over. Get lost. I'm proud of you. You disgust me. We, can, we even connect to God using our words in belief and confession and prayer and worship. Jesus is Lord. Right? Lord, have mercy. Our Father in heaven, praise God. And words are why we have the Bible. And in this specific case, the book of Ecclesiastes. As David Gibson puts it, 
God gave us words because he loves creating things. He loves changing things. He loves seeing something come into being that didn't exist beforehand. He spoke, and with a word, he created everything. Just as he spoke like that, so he speaks here now in these words so that something will happen to us as we hear them. What can happen to us? One effect is to bring beauty and delight into our lives, right? He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now, that combination of delight and truth is so important. We can often approach God's word only asking if it's true. Can we trust it? And that's fine. But it's only part of the picture. God's word is also delightful. It's beautiful. Its beauty attests to its truth and vice versa. When we reject the truth of our creator's words and thus do not see their beauty either, our lives will slowly and sometimes rapidly become devoid of both truth and beauty as we pursue things that are destined to disappoint us, chasing after the wind. But when we see the beauty of God's truth, both beauty and truth can grow and flourish in us. Like think through Ecclesiastes. This happens to us. It can grow in us, flourish in us as we learn to eat drink and find enjoyment in our toil, seeing it all is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Or as we trust that he has made and will make everything beautiful in its time. And as we become confident that it will be well with those who fear God. Or as we are rewarded from doing life together, Two is better than one. You have a reward as we glean the wisdom of a handful of quietness, drawing near to listen, letting our words be few before God, having a good name, working with all our might, casting our bread upon the waters, and rejoicing in our youth and in all our years. Or most of all, as we remember our Creator, the source of beauty and joy and life. Our lives can be changed for the better and for good. True wisdom can be delightful. That's not all I said, is it? I said its effect can also be painful. I get this from verse 11, where we see God's words not only can make us smile, but also wince. Verse 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Now, if you don't know what a goad is, I don't blame you. I wasn't clear on it myself. But goads 
were sharp sticks used to herd animals to keep them moving in a given direction. Okay, so sometimes they had nails at the end, which is probably or maybe why nails are mentioned here. But did the herders intend to injure their animals with these goads? No, of course not. But they did want to inflict just enough pain to move them and guide them. And today, many people think that if something hurts or causes pain at all, it can't be a good thing. But that's simply not true. Right? Airbags and seatbelts can injure you while saving your life. Or doctor shots or surgeries can definitely hurt while being a really good thing for you. The words of the wise are like goads. The, the true wisdom of Ecclesiastes and God's word as a whole is like this. It, it goads us on like, like a poke in the ribs or like a kick in the rear. Sometimes it's delightful. Sometimes it's painful. All times it's powerful. Like we experience this when we veer off course, right, away from God toward greed, pride, sexual immorality, discontentment, and then our consciences are goaded into sorrow and repentance for our sin. Like God's word can make us uncomfortable with sin until we turn away from it. That's the picture. Or when Solomon recounts his fruitless searches for happiness and lasting satisfaction, that really should spur us away from seeking fulfillment in a fallen world. There's pain in the cry of all is vanity, and we, it resonates deep within us. We wince as we're confronted about our foolishness or reminded about our limitations, like we don't know the future, we aren't in control, we aren't the creator, that we feel that the pain of the curse as we're reminded that judgment's coming one day. When, we, when we're repeatedly reminded that we will die, it hurts. It prods us to live well. Wise words steer us away from wrong paths and lead us in paths of righteousness. As you read God's word, does it ever disagree with you? Rebuke you? Or maybe even offend you? I hope so. Tim Keller said it well. He said, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, you'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. 
if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Ouch. True, wise words from God will correct us and challenge us, even if it causes a bit of pain to us. Like Far better that than the alternative of freely and idolatrously wandering off toward hell. Lord, goad us all you need to, to steer us right, guide us toward you. The second image there of nails firmly fixed may, like I said, still refer to goads with nails in them, but most scholars aren't so sure and think he may be suggesting something else. Namely, that the words of the wise can stick in our memory like nails embedded in wood. This is why Solomon would have sought to so carefully arrange and and teach Proverbs, because he knew how powerful a well-said piece of wisdom could be. And in a book full of how ungraspable life is, this is a nice image of permanence and stability. Life is a breath or a vapor, but true wisdom is a nail helping us pin it down. I can personally think of many sayings from Scripture, many even from Solomon, which have made a lifelong impact on me. One example from Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Not sure exactly why. But ever since I heard that as a kid, it stuck in me. And it has hugely affected, to this day, the way I respond to people around me. Or how to work through conflict resolution with people. Like, if you love God's word, I'd bet that you could recount some examples like that for yourself, too. They stick with us. Now, you might wonder why I've been equating Solomon's words with the very words of God. Solomon wasn't God. And as we know, he was a pretty fallible human, too. I don't have time today to to go into all the reasons why we believe the Bible is God's word. But one of the contributing factors of many is that the Bible itself claims to come from God. Himself, God claims this. And this passage does the same. Which would then imply Ecclesiastes isn't just any old wisdom. Like you might hear in a best-selling book or a journalist essay or a TED talk. It's divine. See for yourself. Verse 11 again. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And notice how shepherd is capitalized. One shepherd. Who do you suppose that's talking about? The Lord, who is our shepherd. The words of the wise refer to both Solomon's words and 
God's words. This is really how inspiration works. God breathes words out. Men write them down. See, true wisdom source is God, often through people. You know what that means? True wisdom's ultimate source is God, even if it is often communicated through people. Everything we've learned from Ecclesiastes was given to us. It says it was, these words were given via Solomon, but from God. So are we taking it seriously enough? This is far more than just a fun book to study. These are words of infinite value, eternal importance. They are given by one shepherd. God's the one giving the words of delight. God's the one holding the goads. And Solomon was was the messenger charged with delivering the words of God Almighty. So what? So, we must not merely admire the beauty in the words we've heard. We must learn to submit to their authority. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And right before that, he says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Let me ask, do you know the voice of your good shepherd? Do you hear his voice when he speaks to you through scripture? Or when he uses other people to communicate the truths to you? Whether in sermons or your small group or somewhere else? Are you listening? And then are you following him? There is one greater than Solomon, the wisest of the wise who has come, Jesus Christ, who is known as the Word and the wisdom and power of God. He, and he is the good shepherd who did lay down his life for the sheep. Christ died for us to pay our penalty for our sin, to bear our curse, to appease God's wrath, to kill death itself. Like all these problems that Ecclesiastes introduced, Jesus dealt with them. So have you heard his call to come back to God? Have you heeded his call? If not, I hope you will today. Listen to your shepherd. Follow his voice. Verse 12, either Solomon or the narrator, whoever's speaking here, gives a personal warning. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
But we wonder, should we really be suspicious of any other potential sources of wisdom? Yes and no. Note that he doesn't say to reject anything beyond God's words. But he does say to beware. Be wary and cautious about who you trust. Studying well, reading widely, writing wisely are not wrong. We can do them. But absolutely we should be careful. Because human wisdom is extremely limited. Besides, it can also wear you out. Ecclesiastes has certainly taught us that much. So don't lose yourself in endless studying or questioning or philosophizing and and don't lose sight of the God at the root of it all. In 2 Timothy 3.7, Paul warns us about people who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. If you're still searching for truth, for answers, end your quest at the feet of Jesus. And look, we obviously know that words matter. He says here, just consider how many books have been written in history. Well over 160 million just since the invention of the printing press in 1440. Lately, we've been averaging about 2 million a year. That's around 6,000 a day books being pumped out. He says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is truer than ever. And yet, how many of this unthinkable glut of books can teach us the wisdom of God? The Word of God is by far the most important book in the world to study and to know. So be diligent in learning it, reading it, meditating on it, delighting in it, and be wary of ever going farther than it. Like, don't accept anything less and don't demand anything more. And kids, you can notice that these words were written to a son. They're they're directed to young people. You have a golden opportunity to shape your whole life around the Word of God. Like, learn to listen to the Lord's voice now. Remember your Creator in your youth. And so, at the end, we come to the heart of it all. In a world where all is vanity, what are we supposed to take away from it all? Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I believe that this reveals the heart or the essence of true wisdom to us. I put it this way. The true wisdom's heart is to live under God while under the sun. 
So truism's heart is to live under God for as long as we live under this sun. Solomon's quest for wisdom and joy was extensive, it was comprehensive, and here's the final summary conclusion, the last word, after everything else has been heard, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now when it says there that this is the whole duty of man, it doesn't mean that this is all that God asks us to do. It means this is what all of mankind are called to do. In Hebrew, it literally reads, this is the whole of man or humanity or the fullness of man, which stands in stark contrast with the empty vanity of Ecclesiastes. In essence, whether or not you fear and follow God, this is what you were made for. We are most fully human when we act as creatures giving glory to our Creator. Remember how Ecclesiastes 5 said it, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. So if this is meant to be so central to our existence, what does it mean to fear God? Well, it doesn't mean to be afraid in the way that people are afraid of the dark or boogie monsters or spiders or, or death or public speaking. Now, if an unrepentant, unforgiven sinner were to stand in front of a holy God and just God, they would have reason to cower in terror. But that's really not what this is talking about. This was written to, for people who are already believers. The way I've described the fear of the Lord in this series is, is worshiping God in joyful reverence and holy awe. Worshiping God in, in joyful reverence and holy awe, which goes way beyond just singing in church, by the way. This is a lifestyle. Fearing God is to be in relationship with God as God and in submission to His will. It's to remember our Creator, to humbly honor Him as our one and only God, putting all other loves, all other fears, all other admirations in their place. And it's to be so utterly astounded by who God is, what he can do, that we can't help but praise him and love him and obey him. This is truly what we were all made for. You know the, the saying from the famous catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? That doesn't contradict this with fearing him and keeping his commandments. As anyone who fears God will glorify God by enjoying him and obeying him. Like all the heaven sings in Revelation 15, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? They go together, which further means fearing God 
is not something ominous or scary. It is glorious. Right? It's, it's loving in return the one who loved us and gave everything to us. It's, it's enjoyment of what or, or who we were made most to enjoy. And it is what God's people will spend eternity in paradise doing. Fearing God. In Proverbs, Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fearing God makes us wise. And it should impact the way we live in every area of life. No matter who you are, a son or a daughter, brother or sister, parent or grandparent, employer or employee, teacher or student, politician or citizen, neighbor or friend. No matter what responsibility you have in any of these roles in life, your first responsibility is toward God, to fear and love him. Like, why should we be a certain kind of employee or citizen or student? Because we are to fear God and keep his commandments. Why should you obey your parents or be patient with your kids or love your spouse? Because you fear God and he's commanded you to. Why should we respect our rulers, love our neighbors? You get the idea. Right? Everything we do, we, everything we do, we ought to first and foremost do for the Lord. But let's talk for a moment about keeping his commandments. It says, fear God and keep his commandments. That's not a second distinct command. That's the natural outflow of fearing God. And in case you're wondering, obeying God does not contradict with the gospel of grace that we have in Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself is crystal clear. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's just that under grace, we don't obey in order to gain God's favor. We obey out of his favor. He's loved us first. And as we grow in our faith, it becomes more and more of a joy to follow what he says. But we have a big problem. We tend to falsely imagine God's commandments as restrictive or demanding or overbearing instead of life-giving, joy-instilling, peace-producing, which is what they really are. I was struck by this recently as I was reading a book by Barnabas Piper, who insightfully filled me in on two versions of the story of The Little Mermaid. And I'm not talking about the old Disney version and the new Disney version. <laughs> The modern movie versions are not the original fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. 
In today's renditions, Ariel is a headstrong teenage mermaid who defies her father's wishes, saves a human prince, falls in love with him, sells her voice to a sea witch in order to become human and woo the prince, fails, as she has no voice, and the witch enchants the prince to fall in love with her instead. But just in time, a miracle rescue happens. Ariel regains her voice, sings, breaks the spell. The witch is killed, and Ariel and the prince live happily ever after. But Piper explains that this telling actually completely distorts the original story. In the original, the mermaid does trade her voice with the witch so she can take on human form. However, being a human is excruciatingly painful to her, like walking on knives. Despite her pain, she dances for the prince, but ends up losing him to another princess anyway. She then is given the opportunity to kill him and regain her mermaid form. But instead, she flings herself from a high window, killing herself. The end. No wonder the story got edited. <laughs> it's understandable. But Piper explains, the problem is they sanitized out the message of the story. That there is an inherent promise of peace in living the life you ought, in living as you were created to be, in honoring what is good. In both versions of the story, the mermaid sees her life and the command to stay away from the prince as restrictive and joy-sapping. She believes happiness is with him no matter the cost. In today's version, she finds happiness. The deal with the devil is voided at no cost to her. In Anderson's version, her deal with the devil cost the mermaid her life. Her belief in the pursuit of happiness outside of her father's wishes costs her everything. Sound familiar? God's commands are loaded with promise. And the promise is inherent in him. When God says, do not steal, he does not need to say, because I'll give you nice things. God's, because I said so, is a promise. When the I am commands, he is promising the peace and relationship and connectedness and happiness that come with being in his will. This is what Adam and Eve missed. This is what I've missed over and over and over again. See, when we resist God's commands, we don't fear him. We don't trust him, and we don't believe him to be who he is, which means that we forfeit the peace and joy and fullness that he created us to have. And for this, like Adam and Eve so long ago, and even like Solomon in his day, we will face judgment, as the last verse says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So God will judge us for every deed, everything we ever do, 
a world full of prideful defiance against its creator will face his wrath. But Ecclesiastes isn't necessarily trying to scare us with these words. I think it's more just trying to point us ahead to what, where it's all headed. In other words, life under the sun, under the curse, in this fallen world, life under the sun is not all the life there is. There is a God who is over the sun. And there is life after this sun burns out. Which means that everything we do here now actually has eternal value and significance. And it means that we always have something to live for. The God to whom we will all return. He will look at our lives, evaluate whether or not we feared him. Nothing will go unnoticed, go unassessed, not even our secrets. True goodness will be blessed. True evil will be cursed forever. So can we live our lives in light of that day? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's a sobering ending. But it shouldn't be a scary ending if you fear God. If you don't, it is of utmost importance to ensure that God finds you righteous on that day. And the only hope for that, your only hope, is in Jesus living and dying on your behalf. We all fall short of this. But Jesus didn't. He was the perfect son who listened to his father's voice and feared God in our stead. And he stands now as his people's substitute and advocate before God's throne. So that means that if you have Jesus, you do not need to fear death or judgment any longer. You could say that God did bring your every deed into judgment on the cross. He did this. And in doing so, he actually transformed these future events for believers. Like death and judgment are no longer things to just fear anymore. Death and judgment will be when all good is rewarded. When all our toil pays off. When justice is done once and for all, when all wrongs are made right, when the curse is forever banished from this world, when the creation which was subjected to futility will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, when vanity gives way to victory. So let... The good goads of our good God prod us one final time here. True wisdom, true wisdom prepares now for the end of all our matters. And we do that by living under our creator, our shepherd, and our judge now. So are you? You're under the sun now for sure. But are you under the sun of God? The day is soon coming, as Romans 2 says, when according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Are you ready for that? Like we have 
nightmares of not being prepared for major events in our lives. It's showing up for a big presentation at school or work in our underwear. <laughs> or for totally forgetting what we're supposed to say. Being late to a wedding or a flight. But one day, some will discover they aren't prepared for the most important event of all, and it won't be a dream. They will have spent their lives avoiding reality, ignoring the fact that death and judgment are hurtling toward them. The words of the shepherd in Ecclesiastes are meant to shake us awake, ending the dream, pointing us ahead, and thereby transforming us now. So vanity of vanities, all is vanity? Well, yes, that's true. Under the sun, in a fallen, cursed, broken world, but that's not all there is. We have a God who is, who was, and who is to come. And he alone is not vanity. As Thomas Brooks says, all the soul needs is found in God. There is light to enlighten the soul, wisdom to counsel the soul, power to support the soul, goodness to supply the soul, mercy to pardon the soul, beauty to delight the soul, glory to ravish the soul, and fullness to fill the soul. This truly is the whole of man. So listen to your shepherd's words. You can trust him. Fear him and follow him. Seek after him and find him. You will find true wisdom and true joy there and nowhere else. Let's pray. To borrow the words of William Laud, grant, O Lord, that we may live in your fear, die in your favor, rest in your peace, rise in your power, reign in your glory, for your own beloved Son's sake, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.